So, uh, but I want to talk about this chart for just a minute. And we just finished the book of Colossians. And so, it's amazing how the Bible fits together. And so, when you look at Paul's epistles, how they fit together. And, and you can read them a thousand times, and every time you read the Bible, God will always show you something different. But when you start looking at things, how, how everything, like I said, just fits together like a glove. Now, I, I mean, all of you have had gloves, right? And so, have you ever put the wrong glove on the, on the wrong hand? Or, or put the, put the, did I say that right? You, you put the wrong glove, I guess any hand's right, but on the opposite hand. Okay, let's say it that way. Well, if you're like me, I'm always looking for a pair of gloves that don't have holes in them, or I can find one for the right and one for the left. It's like I always end up, a lot of times in my truck or work, I got two rights, two lefts, or most of the time I've got like six rights and no lefts, or something like that. So a lot of times I'll just kind of wear a glove on the wrong hand. But it just doesn't feel right, does it, when you do that? And yet the Bible, when you look at it, it fits together perfectly. And no matter how you look at it in different ways, different emphasis, different standpoints, you'll start seeing things pop out. And so this little chart will kind of just give you a little bit uh, of how the book fits together and, and things that its emphasis is on. And so I've got a chart here, Paul's Pauline epistles from Romans to Second Thessalonians. And that's the church epistles. And then the emphasis on that particular book, the standpoint of the gospel message, how that relates in that book, and how the believer's union with Christ, how we fit in that book. So it's just interesting. You can look at these these uh, things in each one of Paul's books, and you can see them pop out. So I talked about last week. I gave you the 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 uh, list on the the emphasis on Christ to us. That was the what I gave you last week. That several people said, "Hey, can you type that up?" And so um, and in Colossians, which we just finished, in which we saw Christ, the fullness of God to us. And so everything in the book of Colossians gives us the point that we are completely full with what we have in Christ and we don't need to add anything to it. So you, that's what kind of speaks with these uh, Pentecostals that say, oh, you've got to add tongues to that. You've got to, you've got to, you know, um, what else would they add to it? Oh, you got to be baptized to be saved or all these other things. No, once we are saved in Christ, that the moment we accepted Christ as our Savior, it's a done deal. There's nothing else to be added. Everything that God wants us to have, He gave to us the moment we accepted Christ. Now, we just got to reach out and pull that in. But, so, here's the list. So, Christ, in Romans, we see Christ, the power of God to us. 1 Corinthians, Christ, the wisdom of God to us. 2 Corinthians, Christ, the comfort of God to us. And Galatians, Christ, the righteousness of God. And so we see all these themes in these books. Ephesians, we see Christ, the riches of God to us. And Philippians, Christ, the sufficiency of God to us. Colossians, again, Christ, the fullness of God to us. And then Christ, the promise of God to us in First Thessalonians. And then Second Thessalonians, the last book of the book, we have... Christ, the reward of God to us. So ladies, there's a couple of handouts back there. And I did, I did make a chart for, for everyone. So you'll find that there, which I'm going through now, the, the emphasis on the Pauline epistles. 
And so I just finished going through the emphasis on Christ to us. And then another way you can look at his Gospels, or the, not Gospels, but his books, is the standpoint of the Gospel message, how it relates in each one of these books. And so you see the Gospel and its message in Romans, the Gospel and its ministry in 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, you see the Gospel and its ministers, Galatians, the Gospel and its mutilators. Remember, Galatians is a book that corrects people because they have wrong doctrine. They have been perverting the Word of God. And so you see they're, they're, they're perverting the, the Gospel uh, in uh, the book of Galatians. And if you want taking notes, you could write down chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 there. And in Ephesians, it says the Gospel and the heavenlies. And what I mean by that is the heavenly realities, our heavenly desires, our heavenly joy that we're thinking about. You know, when we're thinking about, and I've mentioned this before in here, a lot of times we're looking forward to the rapture, but we really need to be focused on what? Standing before Christ at, at the judgment seat of Christ, because that's where, you know, the, the, uh, that's where, it's, I'm getting all tongue-tied here. Uh, that's where we're going to be standing before Him and giving an account of our life, and that's where everything, it's going to matter. Our life's going to matter there. And so, um, uh, and so where did I stop at? The heavenlies. The Philippians talks about the gospel and the earthlies, <laughs> which is the believer's physical life. Okay? That's what I meant by that. So there are times when we're focused on the physical, and there are times when we need to be focused on the spiritual there are times where we're living in the now, but there's times when we need to be focused at when we get to heaven. We need to be, and so what takes place at the judgment seat of Christ is really what is what's going on now. And so, uh, uh, First Thessalonians talks about the gospel and the church's future, and Second Thessalonians is it talks about the emphasis of the gospel and the antichrist, how that all works together. So that's another emphasis of the Pauline epistles. And then the last one here is the believer's union with Christ. Okay? So in Romans we have, in Christ we have justification. Uh, in 1 Corinthians it talks about in Christ we have sanctification. We got all those shun words that's, that's, that you talk about and that you hear preachers talk about. In 2 Corinthians, in Christ we have consolation. In Galatians we have, uh, liberation. And in Ephesians, we see in Christ we have exaltation. In Philippians, we have in Christ we have exaltation. And in Colossians, we have in Christ, again, what was we've been talking about? We have completion. And in Christ, in 1 Thessalonians, we see in Christ translation. And in 2 Thessalonians, in Christ, we see compensation. So these are some themes you'll see throughout the books. So hold on to that, put it in your Bible, do whatever you want with it, take it home, make it paper, airplane, I don't care. But, you see, it'll just kind of show you how you'll see some of these emphasis in the books that you're reading when you go through uh, Paul's epistles. So we just finished Colossians, and again, in Colossians, we see that in Christ we are completely full. We have everything we need. And so it, it counters the, the gospel and philo- man's philosophy, and it is in Christ we are complete. So you can kind of see how that goes. So I said all that to wrap up, and so today we're going to start the book of Nehemiah. And so we went from Colossians, 
I've been kind of doing Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament as I've been in here. And so today we're going to get back to, to the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to see in this book that it has some connections to us in the Laodicean church period. And so it's like, okay, why are we doing an Old Testament book? Well, it's going to help us out in the time period we live. And in fact, every book in the Bible is going to do that. Every book in the Bible, the theme of every book in the Bible is the second coming. So no matter what book we're going to be talking about or preaching or teaching in here, it's always going to have a reference to the second coming because that is, that is the, the climax of the Bible. And that's really what God cares about because He, it, if He puts that in every book of the Bible, do you think God is concerned about the second coming? Yeah. yeah, God the Father is looking forward to the day that His Son takes over the earth completely and gets things going. Because basically, life here on earth is a test. It's kind of like when I was a kid and I, uh, you know, I'd be watching cartoons on Saturday morning. I don't know, you guys probably didn't watch cartoons when you were, were you guys kids at one time? It's been a long time back, hasn't it? Yeah. So you got it Saturday morning, and then they would come on. They go, "This is a test from the national broadcasting deal," and it was like, and then it would go, and just and you're like, "Why do you have to put this on in the middle of my cartoons, dude?" It just hacked me off. But really, so it was a test. But life is a test, really. Our life and the and all of history is a test. Whether you choose God or you don't choose Him. It's that simple. And so when, when God has allowed everything to get through, He's going to step back on, and He's going to step back on the throne, and He's going to take over His rightful command of the earth, and He's going to, He's going to put earth and heaven together, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to go on into eternity, and the neat thing is, there will be no sin, there will be no Satan, there will be no, uh, 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 unrighteousness, it'll be those people that have chosen God or His Son to go on into eternity with God. And that's really what life's about. Do you want to join God or do you not? And yet you have people that just blows my mind that will just say, no, I see where you're going, God, but I don't want to do it. It just blows my mind. That's why I think us, you know, as, as, as Bible-believing Christians, it's real hard to understand the evil in our world today. Because we think everybody should be, should be, do things right. You know? We can't, I can't understand why people would sacrifice a baby. I can't understand why people would abort a baby. But yet, they are sacrificing kids to Satan now. Around the world. And it's like, I don't understand that. There is evil here, but one day, God's going to kick all those guys to the lake of fire, and it's just going to be the people that, that have chosen God, and God has already chosen them. And so, uh, I say all that to get to where I'm at. But anyway, uh, let's look at the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament, and if you have a Bible like mine, it's on page 649. That probably helped out three of you. Pretty close. <laughs> okay, so it's in the Old Testament about halfway through. It's right after Ezra. So I'm just going to read through our page here. And I think you guys have some blanks here. So if I, if, if I don't get the blank, you stop me, okay? It says, there are three historical books in the Old Testament that deal with the nation of Israel after the exile to Babylon. 
And so everybody pretty well knows that, right? There was a time Israel was, was the top, uh, uh, empire in the world. It didn't last for a long time, but under David and Solomon, Israel was the pinnacle. It was the empire that ruled the world. But yet, when you go to school, they talk about the Egyptian period, they talk about the Babylonians, they talk about the Greeks, they talk about the Romans. They never talk about David and Solomon having an empire, even though it didn't last as long as some of these others. And the reason it didn't last was because they disobeyed God and God took them down. Because God told him, hey, if you don't abide by my rules and if you don't do my commandments, I'll kick you to the curb. That's basically what he did at one point. And so, uh, uh, Assyria and Babylon came in. They took over Babylon, or they took over Israel. They defeated the kings of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And can you imagine that? And they carried away captive the people of the land back to Babylon. That would be like, that would be like England coming over to us, destroying, uh, taking over our country and then us all moving and putting us back in England. I don't think they could put all of us in America back in England. But can you imagine being yanked out of your home and going to a foreign country that spoke a foreign language all because why? He didn't obey God. And that's what happened here. Okay. So that's what happened when they were sent from Babylon. But so there are three historical books that deal with Israel after the exile to Babylon. They are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now we just went through Esther. Uh, we finished that this spring, right? In here? And that was a great book. We've, so far we've went through several books. One, we've went through both Ruth and Esther. And both of those are fantastic. If you haven't been to uh, Branson to see the play Esther, and what, where's it at? It's the Sound Sight and Sound Theater, right? If you haven't seen that, you need to go see it. It's worth it. So um, down at uh, they have uh, a big. Pl- Has anybody been to to uh, the Sight and Sound Theater in Branson in here? If you have, raise your hand. Some of you have, some of you haven't. But it's a big theater in Branson, and it's like a play, and I mean, it's huge. It's like a play you've never seen. I mean, it's a 3D almost play. People around, all around you, they have animals in it, they have horses in it, they have all kinds of things going up and down the aisle, and it's, it's, it's really a neat place. So right now, what's playing this year is Esther. So some of us have went to see that, and if you haven't done that, that'd be a good thing to go see. But we talked about, we've already been through Esther. So, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are the books in the Bible that deal with Israel after the exile to Babylon. Okay? And so we're getting ready to go through. And it says both Ezra and Nehemiah deal with what happened to the Jews who went back to Israel. And Esther has to do with the Jews that stayed in Babylon and Persia. You remember there was a group of them that didn't come back. Okay? And so there are, and here's what's kind of interesting. There are also three prophetical books in the Bible that deal with Israel after the return of Babylon also, where God raised up three prophets to reveal His words. Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Okay? So we've got three books, and we've got three prophets in our Bible that have books that tell us about what happened to the nation of Israel after they came back into the land. So Ezra, so I'm doing a little homework here. This is some background information before we get to Nehemiah. 
So Ezra, the first one, reveals the Jews go back to Israel in two phases. And I just want to point out some dates here and some things. The return had been foretold by God to be after 70 years of captivity. So let's turn to, to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to see if we can see where God foretold that this would happen. Even though uh, Jeremiah is listed in our Bible behind uh, behind uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they are actually before it in historical terms. So I've got to get to my right page. So Jeremiah chapter 25. And we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah chapter uh, 25 verses 11 and 12 says, And the whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How many years? Seventy years. And it shall come to pass when seventy years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, basically their sin, and the land of the Chaldeans and will make it a perpetual desolations. Verse 13. And I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book which Jeremiah hath prophesied against the nations. So, jump over to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Chapter 29. And let's start at verse 10 and run down to 14. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus saith the Lord that after how many years? Seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. That's what he has with us too, right? You know, we have a God that doesn't beat us on the head when, when we, when we do wrong. You know, like that game up at Worlds of Fun, they're beating a gopher on the head. A lot of people, the gods of other false religions like Islam or any of these false gods, if you get out of line, your God whacks you. Our God doesn't do that. Okay, our God loves us. In fact, that's a, if you're witnesses to a Muslim or some of the, some of these people that have a false religion and they're, and you're talking about religions and you have an open door, a good question that says, well, just tell me, what what has your God done for you lately? And then they'll go, it, it'll stump them. And you'll go, let me tell you what my God has done for me. Number one, He saved me from my sin. And so it gives you an open door. That's not in my notes. I'm just throwing that in for free today, guys. Okay, so where did I stop? So we have a God that's not thinking evil, but He's thinking good. Verse 12. It's just like the Old Testament Israelites. Verse 12. Then shall ye call upon me... And ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with your with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places wherein I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So it was already foretold that God would send them to Babylon because they disobeyed God. But yet when they turned to Him and after 70 years, He was going to bring them back. Okay, And so, um, number two, so the return was already foretold and the return back was 
under the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, was also foretold. So turn over to your book in Isaiah, because I know you guys are all from Missouri. Everybody here is from Missouri? Okay. Yeah, I think we're all... Has everybody great been raised and, and born here in Missouri? Everybody? Nobody? So we have a couple in back that haven't. Okay. So, well, you know, you're living in the right state now, right? Okay. I, I'm saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek because actually my wife and I live on the Kansas side, but we, we, were, we grew up in Missouri. And somehow we just keep... And they're trying to get us back to Missouri. Okay. Um, and so where are we? Isaiah? Isaiah 44, and let's look at verse 28. And said, uh, and the reason I said the Missouri thing, because I have to show you guys in Missouri. So that's why I back up and use some of the verses. Okay. So, um, Isaiah, let me get my notes. 44.28 says, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. This is 175 years before it takes place. And God names the king of Persia by name. Okay? It's also interesting for you Bible students. He says here that the foundation shall be laid. It was under Cyrus, but if you go back and read Ezra, it wasn't until another king came on that the rest of the temple was built. So that's how precise our Bible is. I just noticed that the other day. But this verse takes place 175 years in the future from when it took place. Now I want you to drop down to, to, to chapter 45. Just write the next verse down. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gate shall not be stopped. Shut, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight, and I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Well, that's what had already happened, but let me see if I'm where I wanted to go. Um, drop down to verse 13. And he goes, he's talking about Cyrus. He goes, I have raised him up in righteousness and will direct all his ways and he shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of God. So basically it's like, I'm going to command the king of Babylon to allow you guys to go back and not just to go back, I'm going to allow him to start rebuilding the temple back. And if you go back and study Ezra, he even gives them the means to, to do that, which is unheard of. And so um, the return was foretold by God, and even the king of Persia's name was foretold 175 years in advance. Now, that's my God, and that's how great this book is. Okay? And so, uh, number three says, the first remnant was under a guy by the name of Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. Okay, This guy, Zerubbabel, is basically in line with the kings of Judah. He would have been a king had, had they not been fallen and went into captivity. He goes back and he leads the nation of Israel back but he really never becomes their king, but yet uh, he was their leader. 
And that's in uh, roughly what I put down, 536 B.C. Okay, we'll see that in in Ezra. If you want to go back and study Ezra, we'll see that in chapters 1 through 6. And that first remnant, that first group that went back to the land of Israel from Babylon, or or basically uh, today that would be Iran, they go back and there are 49,697 people that go back. I have it listed under point 3. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible's pretty precise. Okay, number four. So that was the first wave. There are actually two times that the Jews go back. There's there's two waves of them. The second remnant or the second wave was under Ezra in 456 BC. Okay, and so what's the time period? How many years have passed between those two? Uh, 13 minus 5. Is that 7 or 8? I'm thinking 80. But you know me. I, I, I got to stop and get my calculator. No, I can do that. 80 years. So there's about an 80 year difference between the first of those, those two remnants going back. Okay? So uh, keep that in mind. And so we see that in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And this time there are 2,000 males that are specifically listed, but it doesn't say anything about wives or children. So I'm saying some of those are on top of that. So uh, the book of Ezra shows us God's, you got a blank, restoration of the nation of Israel. Okay? So when they were carried away to Babylon, everything, the temple had been destroyed. There's nothing in the land except the poorest of the people. And so basically the nation, most of them have ever, have either been killed off or they were carried away. And yet now they're coming back to establish the nation again. And so the book of Ezra shows us God's restoration of the nation. The next line says the book of Nehemiah will show us God's reconstruction. So reconstruction goes in there. Reconstruction goes in your blank of the nation of Israel. And this is interesting because our next line says the book of Esther shows us God's blank of the nation of Israel. Now, I want you guys that went through this in our our class here. What happened in the book of Esther to the Jews? At the end. They were saved. They were saved. They were preserved. So, it shows us God's preservation of the nation of Israel. So, when uh, Ezra is just a little bit after the time of Nehemiah, and it was under Esther that uh, Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. Well, think about this. If he would have allowed to kill all the Jews, it wouldn't have just been the Jews in Babylon. They would have killed the Jews in Jerusalem also. And so, these books that just kind of fit together here like a glove. You have restoration, reconstruction, and you have to have Esther in there because if Esther hadn't been in that spot, they would have killed all the Jews. Or God would have used a different means because He wasn't going to allow them to be wiped out. But the book of Esther shows us God's preservation. Okay? And so basically that's the background of where I wanted to go today. And then we're going to start the book of Nehemiah. Let me give you a few things here, and we'll see how far we go before we actually open up our Bible to chapter 1. The date written, I have this 432 B.C. I'm not going to write that date yet. Uh, there were 
two times that that Nehemiah also went to Jerusalem. Once in 445 B.C. So let's uh, let's just stop for a minute. So we've got eleven years. So we have another eleven years take place before he actually goes. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. So we have a group that went in five thirty six, a group in four. And you got to remember, we're getting closer to uh, to Christ. That that's BC. So five thirty six, uh, four fifty six, eighty years, and then four forty five. Now we're another eleven years farther. Okay, and so um, and he goes two times. If you, and then the other time in your notes is in four thirty two BC because he gets called back to Babylon. He still see they're still under Babylon's control, and so even though we'll find out in the book that Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and he goes back to help them, but then the king of Babylon also pulled him back in because apparently he's got a connection with the with the king. It happens to be in good standing with the king, right? How many of you are in good standing with the president today? How many of you want to be in good standing? <laughs> okay. I don't think any of us do. But, you know, it would be nice, you know, if you can just call the president or the king up and go, hey, got a problem here, uh, buddy, or, you know, whatever his name is. But uh, he he wouldn't want us calling, would he? Um, and so, two times that he goes back, to the land, 445 B.C., 432 B.C. And so there are 13 chapters, 406 verses, 10,483 words in the in this book. And if you don't believe me, you can check that out this week. Mark, you probably will do that, won't you? Sure. <laughs> okay. Uh, use that for whatever you want. Key verses, chapter 111. And again, I'm giving you background for the book. Uh, doctrinally. What does this mean doctrinally? The book. God puts His people in the right place at the right time. Oh, does that sound just like Esther? Does that sound just like uh, uh, Joseph in the Bible? But you know what? How about us? Have you ever thought about that? God has put each one of us in the time period He wants us because He has something for us to do. We think, you know, here's what I want to uh, really emphasize on today. What God has done for the people in the Bible, Old or New Testament, He will do for us. Because we always think, oh, it's those guys. He'll do it for us. We just got to have the relationship with Him. And He will do, He will do the things that you've seen Him do. Because He's a consistent God and He is not a respecter of persons. And even though we may be in a different dispensation, he's still going to uh, be true to his characteristics. Okay, so doctrinally, he puts the, uh, hits people at the right place at the right time, and we're going to see that with Nehemiah. And inspirationally, it's basically how to build the church in the Laodicean church age, and that's the church age we live in. And you're like, how are you going to get this out of that, Bob? Well, you're going to have to come and find out. Okay. Uh, historical is the rebuilding of the, I'm sorry, I missed that, the wall. When Nehemiah goes back, his purpose, his main goal is he gets the wall built around Jerusalem. Uh, Zerubbabel started the foundation of the temple and then saw it built. Uh, but this time, Nehemiah is basically about rebuilding the walls around the temple. 
And so for us, it's going to be like rebuilding our life around our relationship with God or with Christ. Okay, so uh, that's historical, the rebuilding of the wall. Doctrinally, God puts his people in the right place at the right time. And inspirationally, it's how to build the church. Church goes in your blank. I didn't give you that. In the Laodicean church age. And the last one is Christ is typified as our rebuilder. You know, you may be here today and you may think, you know, I have just totally uh, burnt my bridges with the Lord. I've done this. I've done that. And you know what? The Lord can rebuild those if you allow Him. Okay? So, page number two. Man, I'm moving right along. So, we'll see how we're doing. Nehemiah. I'm going to call this Nehemiah and the Jerusalem Project. So, basically, the rest of the book is going to be the Jerusalem Project. It's all about Nehemiah going there. Now, Ezra could have said the same thing. Or maybe he did. Maybe Nehemiah did. But I don't know. I did. So I'm putting it in my notes. So uh, it's all about the Jerusalem project. So let's go ahead and turn there back to Nehemiah. And in, in Nehemiah, and I'll just kind of give you an outline of the book real quick. One through six is Nehemiah with physical rebuilding. And in verses, or chapter 7 through 13, we have Ezra, uh, spiritual rebuilding. So we have the physical rebuilding of the wall, but there's a spiritual rebuilding that we're going to see also in this book. So let's read, uh, chapter 1 of Nehemiah, and I'm going to get into it a little bit today and probably break it down, uh, not as much detail as I would like, but we'll get it broken down. The words of Nehemiah, the son of how do you pronounce that? Hakaliah? We'll go with it. And it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also is broken down, or also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, how many of you guys lock your doors at night? Okay, so we have doors and we have them locked. But apparently they don't have a wall and they don't have a gate, so you can walk right in. Kind of sounds familiar? Kind of like our country today, right? Just leave the doors open and everybody will come in. I'll I'll throw this out. Before the people were taken in captivity to Babylon, they came in and they took one of the kings of Israel, the southern tribes, by the name of Manasseh, which was one of the wickedest kings that Israel had. They pulled him to Assyria. And while he was in Assyria, in jail, in the dungeon, he did a poor God help me, I messed up prayer. And God heard him in his prayer. Anybody of you said a prayer like that? Oh God, if you get me out of this situation, I'll, I'll come to church on Sunday. I've said that. <laughs> you get me out of this fix, Lord, I'll just, I'll just do whatever you want me to do. Well, that's what King Manasseh did while he's in jail in Assyria. And God heard his prayer and God brought him back to Israel and put him on the throne. Now, is that not a miracle or what? Well, you know what the first thing he did when he got back in power? He fortified his walls. 
I'm reading that a few years ago, and I'm like, oh, if our country would just figure this out, put up a wall, keep the pe- bad people from coming in. Anyway, where am I at? I'm getting ahead of myself. Back to uh, back to uh, the book of Nehemiah. Um, verse verse three. Did I get there yet? Okay. And the wall was broken down, the gates of river burned with fire. Verse 4. Thank you. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye will turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are the servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Okay, so that's the end of the chapter there. And so I just want to real quickly, in the few minutes we have here, uh, kind of go through this. Nehemiah and the Jerusalem Project, uh, chapter 1, but uh, number 1 on your handout, the situation is presented in verses 1 through 3. The time period. Well, the time period is uh, in Chislu, I'm sorry, that's not, that is, uh, which is, uh, that's correct, Chislu, which would be our December. Okay, it's also in Shushan, which is the capital city of Persia, and it's in the king's palace. And it is in, it says the 20th year, I had to stop and think about that, the 20th year of that particular king. And again, being good Missourians, you're going to ask me, how do I come up with that? I just felt like it. No. Uh, go over to chapter 2 and look at verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. So that 20th year is the, the year of the king there. And so that's the time period and the place. So basically, December, capital city, in the palace. Starting to sound a lot like Esther, isn't it? He's actually in the palace with the king. Okay, And then the people involved, well, so far we have Nehemiah, who's the son of this, what did we say, Hakaliah, Hachaliah? Okay, maybe I'm, I'm the only one that has a problem with that. So, he's, so we got Nehemiah, and then we got 
uh, verse 2, it says that Han and I, one of my brethren, came. What do you think that means, a brethren? Do you think that's just a Jewish guy? Or what do you think? If I said, hey, I want to meet, I want you to meet Han and I, one of my brethren, what would you guys think? Well, now would be, be a Christian. Could be a Christian, but I'm actually thinking this is his brother. Because he says, and certain of the men, right? Let's read that verse again. And Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. Well, there's men of Judah, so this, this, uh, no Christians back in the Old Testament yet. So this, I believe this Hanani is his brother. So this is getting kind of personal to him. So you got Nehemiah, you got this Hanani, a brother of Nehemiah, and you have certain men who had returned from Jerusalem. And they're going to give a, I have number three here, it's, uh, uh, you could put report, a report made or a pronouncement made. That's what goes in your blank. And so what is the pronouncement that they make? Well, they just got back from Jerusalem. Things are in a mess and the walls are broken down and the gates are burnt. And so they couldn't, they could not keep, uh, people out that they did not want in. And if, and the Jews somehow have a knack all down through history of having enemies. Have you noticed that? How about you? How about, how about myself? Do we have enemies? Yeah. Unfortunately we do. We have enemies that would like to kill us. Satan wants to annihilate us. All of his cronies want to annihilate us. Um, whenever we have major problems in our life that we didn't cause, you just can pretty well bet Satan's behind the scenes. I was sitting here ta- talking to Carrie this week. Last week, James Horton was supposed to come in and teach. He was here that day. He got sick during uh, uh, the music rehearsal and and had end up. In, he's been in the hospital all week. He's not, he's still in there now. He's supposed to come home this afternoon. I heard, and I'm thinking, oh my, he was getting ready to teach today or last week. Did I just put him in the hospital by asking him to teach for me? Things like that. I don't take that for granted. People are, are attacked when they preach or teach the Word of God. When uh, when I was preaching, uh, a lot of us used to you hear Brian talk about preaching to City and Mission. A lot of us were down there mm-hmm. preaching to City and Mission. I remember going down there and, and Carrie, would, in fact, that was the very fir- first place I ever went and, and preached. And she goes, I know exactly what what a week that you're pre- that you're going to preach. Because everything that hits the fan the week before. And I started noticing and I'm like, yeah, you know. It's like everything is just going on that week. And I'm like, so you just, you make sure you're prayed up. <laughs> and yet, and then after a few years, you, you just, oh, that's just kind of normal and you kind of, you, you don't, you kind of ignore it. But no, it's real. It's a real thing. And so these Jews always have enemies. And so Nehemiah's response was, number one, what did he do? Verse four. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept. So that goes in your blanks. He sat and wept. When's the last time you sat and wept for a situation? 
I don't know about you. I don't cry a whole lot. I guess I'm, a, you know, I, I was kind of raised that you know men don't cry, and that's not true, and that's not good. We need to let emotions out too. But Nehemiah, he is all tore up over this, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow. I mean, uh, did he have other family members? Maybe that was in Jerusalem. I don't know. But I know it really touched his heart, and he's just tore up about it. So he sat and he wept, and he mourned for certain days. So he it just wasn't a oh I feel bad about that. I mean he is he is weeping. He's sitting down. He's mourning for certain days, and he fasted, and then he prayed. And let's look at the details of his prayers. He admits who God is in that prayer, verse or verse five. He admits God's characteristics. And then, uh, see, it says he asked God to listen to and look upon his prayer. That goes in your blank. To listen to and look on upon his prayer. He goes, God, I want you to listen to my prayer. Please listen to my prayer. And will you actually look at what's going on here? I mean, he's earnest. He's earnest. And he had... Uh, D says he admits the Jews' sin and he includes himself in this prayer that he's a sinner also. And you'll see several other people in the Bible, prophets, that when they ask God for forgiveness, and it really, like, like this, it wasn't specifically, uh, Nehemiah's sins. I mean, he may have been born in Babylon, but yet he still puts himself in with the rest of the people. You know, he doesn't say, oh God, you know, those people that sinned, you know, you know, no, he goes, we have sinned. So I thought that's very interesting because he puts that in there. And verse seven says, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor thy statutes, nor, and all that. So he puts himself in, in with the rest of them. And he asks God to remember God's promises in, in verses eight through ten. He says, God, God, you, you did this because we did this, but you also promised this if we did this. And yet, God had already told him it's going to be a 70-year captivity. I'm going to bring you back. I wonder if Nehemiah had a problem with he was still in uh, uh, Babylon and not in Israel and not back in Jerusalem. You think he's maybe feeling bad about that too? Why didn't he go back? I don't know. So he asked God to remember... God's own promises. And the last thing here, F, he asks for mercy. That's what he asks God for. He goes, I'm bringing the situation to you, and here's what I want. I want mercy. He didn't really list things out. He just said, God, have mercy on us. You know, sometimes that's a really good prayer. I mean, a lot of times we need to be specific, but sometimes you just throw the situation out to God and say, God, what can you do? What what will you do? (laughs) Okay, you can do whatever, but... I'm bringing it for you. And I, I'm not exactly sure maybe what I, that needs to be done, but I'm bringing it before you and I know you can, you can work through this. Okay? So we ask for mercy. So I'm going to ask, ask you a question. Was his prayer answered in chapter one? Did he get an answer so far that we read? Not yet. Okay. Will it be answered? Yes, it will be answered if you've read the book. I said, if God answered the Jews' prayers under Daniel, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, what will you do to the Jews who ask God's forgiveness in the coming tribulation? Tribulation goes in your blank. Okay. 
Okay, I think I'm going to stop, but uh, we'll go through this a little bit more next week. I'll review this, and I'm going to take you to Chronicles, and I'm going to look at what God says. The very last thing he said in chapter 1, that he was the king's cupbearer. That's very important how right. everything goes. Which goes right back. God has this person at the right place at the right time, right? And so, if God is going to answer these guys' prayers, which he does, what does God do with our prayers? He answers in First John one nine. So I'll stop there. We'll review a little bit of this in as as we start next week, but we're just getting started. So we'll find out what all the book of Nehemiah is about as as we continue. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah specifically, Lord. I just pray that you would give all of us uh, wisdom to to uh, understand the truths that are in this book. Uh, not just to the Jewish people, but that inspirationally, how, how we can glean from the information and from the truths in Nehemiah in our life. So I pray that in the coming weeks. I pray, Lord, that you would just open up your word to us. Uh, I pray that uh, everyone that's in here, that when we read your word, Lord, that, that you would just talk to us and, and show us what you want us to see. So I, again, as we leave here, I pray for Jay's, Pastor Jason as, as he uh, brings the main message. And I pray that you would give us a good day and a good week. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So if you want to, your homework could be read the book of Nehemiah. So it's it's a little longer than uh, Colossians, but it's not bad. It's not bad at all.